Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Hedlund. Another rock star sleep expert on this week's show that we'll introduce you to as soon as we take care of a couple of pieces of business. And as you might expect, we will save the biggest one for last. Everything you're about to hear in these three announcements will be in the show notes and on our website. So don't worry if it comes at you in a hurry. First of all, it's contest time. In fact, we've got contests through the next several episodes. So here's all you need to do. Send an email to this address contests at the snoozebutton.com. Again, contests at the snoozebutton.com. Sunday, February 9th, we're going to make a random draw for all the entries we receive. One winner gets a copy of Dr. Guy Leschsinner's fascinating book, The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience, and the Secret World of Sleep. Now, if you want to hear the conversation about the book, Guy was on the show back in November to talk about the stories of some of the fascinating things that happen in our brains while we're sleeping and how sometimes those things lead to unexpected behavior, everything from sleepwalking to driving a motorcycle in your sleep. Second, Based on your feedback, we have found a cool and easy new way for people to support the show. We'll put a link in the show notes, but it's as simple as going to glow.fm slash the snooze button. That's glow.fm slash the snooze button. Tunnel levels of support you can jump in on either one time or monthly, and the various levels get you anything from a shout out on the show to having access to chapters of my new book before they've even gone to the editor. That's glow.fm slash the snooze button. And finally, here's the big one. If you're a regular listener, you know that one of the things I've been concerned about for a while is the number of people randomly handing out medical advice on various websites, even though they don't have the qualifications to do so. It's actually bordering on dangerous. So we decided to do something about it. We've assembled a panel of some of the greatest sleep experts in the world. Many of them have been guests on this show. And every week, we're going to throw one of them a question that you have submitted. Right now, there are two ways to send us your questions, and we're working on a third that we'll have ready in time for next week's episode. First of all, you can send your question by email. The email address is asktheexperts at thesnoozebutton.com. Again, asktheexperts at thesnoozebutton.com. Or, even cooler way is to use this newfangled thing we've got. It's a speak pipe page. It lets you use uh, your the, the microphone on your phone or the microphone on your computer to record your question straight into our system, and we play it back like it was a voicemail. The website for that is as follows, speakpipe.com slash the snooze button. Speakpipe.com slash the snooze button. In either case, make sure you let us know your first name and your town. And once a week, starting with next week's episode, we're going to pick a question, give it to one of our experts. I know that was kind of a word salad. And so for all of that, uh, the info and all the links are going to be in the show notes for the episode and in the entry as well for this episode on our website, thesnoozebutton.com slash podcast. Now, on to this week's episode. Dr. Jade Wu. Uh, really a force to be reckoned with in the sleep world. She's a sleep psychologist and clinical scientist at Duke University School of Medicine, also the host of the award-winning Savvy Psychologist podcast. The research that she's doing right now focuses on treating sleep disorders in people with chronic illness. She is a regular feature at international conferences. She's a reviewer for top-tier scientific journals. In her clinic, uh, her approach is grounded in science and, get ready, compassion. 
so that her clients can not only sleep better, but also live healthier. Uh, A heads up for you, as we recorded this episode, she was 37 weeks pregnant. So there was a chance that she could go into labor at literally any moment. So we're extra grateful for the time that we got to spend with Dr. Jade Wu. I'm going to start you with the first question that everybody on the show gets, and it doesn't matter whether you are a neuroscientist or the uh, lead singer for a rock band, you get the same (laughs) first question. Mm -hmm. How did you sleep last night? Oh, man. This is is a bad day to ask me because last night I had a pretty horrible night of insomnia. Yeah, Uh, but that's probably related to the fact that I'm about 37 weeks pregnant and uh, having all sorts of physical symptoms that are making it hard to sleep. But yeah, I would say not so great last night, but it's okay. So, I mean, for you at 37 weeks, there's all this talk out there about what side do you sleep on? If you're pregnant, do you sleep on your back? Do you sleep this way? Do you sleep that way? What's been your biggest challenge as, as you're at the 37 week part? Is it, are you able to even get comfortable at all? Because I know my wife had all kinds of trouble with that. Yeah, I can, if I can, hmm, if I can sort of trick myself into falling asleep and staying asleep, then I think I'm pretty comfortable through that time. But I think it's a frequently waking up to use the bathroom that then it's hard to get comfortable again, you know, when I get back to bed. So it's just a combination of physical discomforts, having to go to the bathroom often, um, and, you know, just generally not feeling as comfortable. I know from watching you on Twitter, I don't, I don't mean like watching you in a creepy way, uh, <laughs> just, you know, you're, you're in one of those lists of, of people that I really pay attention to what they've got to say, like Michael Grandner's on that same list and, and uh, some of the other folks who've sort of uh, dipped their fingers into my sleep life as well. Uh-huh. And, and I saw a great line from you the other day where you were talking about how research is me-search. Oh. And I wonder if this past 37 weeks has shaped some of the research that you're doing into sleep? You know, I've tried to not dig in really hard with my uh, researcher hat on during these 37 weeks, because I know that sometimes I can overthink it and overdo it. Um, But it's, it wasn't so much me search as um, search about people that I really cared about in the past couple of years that really led me down the path of looking into sleep related to pregnancy. Because for a couple of years, I worked with women um, who are who are either trying to get pregnant and having trouble or were currently pregnant or had some sort of postpartum mood or anxiety disorder. So you can imagine sleep comes up a lot in those conversations, um, whether people were dealing with a newborn and having trouble sleeping or they were Uh, you know, staying up because of worries about whether they were going to be able to get pregnant and worries about complications during pregnancy. So it was my caring for my patients that really made me want to look into sleep about pregnancy. And it just so happened that sleep was my other specialty anyway. So that intersection between pregnancy and sleep just became the obvious thing to look at. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, yeah, research is me search. And I'm glad that I kind of got that research out of the way before I myself got pregnant. What do you uh, talk to your patients about when when they come? I mean, I know everybody's different, but is there sort of an overriding thing that, hey, if if the whole baby is screaming all night and this is what's happening, is there sort of a, a basic checklist of things that people can try or that you recommend to people? Like how do we, you know, even for your own case coming up, I'm, I'm sure... 
some time has been spent in your house figuring out how are we going to navigate this, I bet. Sure, yeah. So while my disclaimer is one that I don't yet have personal experience, I'm sure I'll learn all sorts of things that, you know, that I uh, that one cannot learn until they really experience it themselves. So that's one uh, disclaimer. And the other one is that I think when we talk about baby sleep and postpartum sleep for adults, um, that happens in the context of so many other things that a pediatrician would be more qualified to talk about. Um, Like I really don't know what to say about how to soothe the baby, but what I do tell patients leading up to the time when they're about to give birth are a few main points. One is that, yes, expect that your sleep will be disrupted and will be very different from before. But two, it's probably not, or it may not be as bad as everyone makes it sound. I think there's something about our cultural emphasis on sleep and the fact that sleep is one thing that we can all sort of easily complain about when it comes to newborns and babies that makes it, that really bakes it into our cultural conversation about having babies and becoming new parents because it's really stigmatized and real to say, I sometimes don't want to spend more time with my baby or I'm having a like postpartum depression or I'm having a really hard time. And I'm wondering whether I made the right decision in wanting to have kids. These are things you cannot just open a conversation with, but no. <laughs> you can say, oh, my God, I'm getting the worst sleep ever. I'm so sleep deprived. And everyone can relate to that. So I think on one hand, it's really good that we are all willing to sort of share and provide mutual support for disruptions to sleep. Um, at the same time, I think we might be making it sound worse than it really is because the research actually shows that parents um, get disrupted sleep, but they still do get about six or seven hours, which is not horrible. Um Obviously, there's a lot of variation in that. Some people are getting a lot less. Some people are getting more. And it's not going to feel like a regular six or seven hours because it's broken up into smaller chunks and there's going to be more um, middle of the night awakenings, obviously. And, you know, you may be sleeping at different times than you're used to. But when we talk about severe sleep deprivation, it's, it's actually not the case that most new parents are severely sleep deprived in the, in the way that, you know, like a a tortured prisoner of war would be sleep deprived. And I've heard plenty of parents say, Hey, isn't sleep deprivation like a form of torture that, you know, that the, that you're, it's not even legal to do to prisoners, but here we are getting severely sleep deprived. And I think that is a little bit of an exaggeration for at least most people. Um, So, yeah, so expect your sleep to be disrupted, but it's not probably going to be as bad as everyone makes it sound. Um, And three, you get to look forward to milestones. So, for example, we talk a lot about sleep, but we don't talk a lot about uh, the biological clock, the circadian rhythm. So at about three months-ish, babies develop their own circadian rhythm. They start to have more of a day-night difference and more of a 24-hour um, pattern that they they automatically biologically follow. But before that, they're really not uh, on any sort of schedule. And 
most people cannot get their newborn babies to be on a schedule. And that's because they're really in their fourth trimester. Their brains are not really ready yet to um, have a ready tuned master clock, but by three months, they'll be more, um, they'll be more tuned. So they'll be able to, um, differentiate between day and night. They'll be more likely to sleep during the night than during the day. They'll be be able to sleep for longer during the night. And also at that point, they're not feeding as frequently as the first, you know, few weeks. So I know that for a lot of women, when I talk to them, you know, a few weeks postpartum that they're feeling like, you know, am I going, is this going to be forever? And is there ever going to be a light at the end of the tunnel? And yes, there is. I think three months is one milestone you can look forward to. Um, I think the next major milestone after that is college. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that people will be sleeping really well when the teenagers are finally out of the house. So yeah, you get to look forward to that. And I hear it goes by. Yeah, and exactly. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah. So yeah, looking forward to milestones. Like I think, I think the, the, um, circadian rhythm formation is a huge one. And, um, Oh, and one thing that I've already definitely sat down with my husband and talked about uh, in detail is the idea of doing the sleep shifts. Yep. So not everyone has a partner, um, but for people who do have partners or a postpartum doula or another family member or someone that can help sometimes during the night, the sleep shift, I think, is a fantastic idea. So this is where um, instead of both parents... Uh, being liable to be woken up every time that the baby wakes up, you sort of split the night up with a big overlap in the middle. Um, so that for let's say six hours, you know, you are on duty and your wife is off duty so that if the baby is sleeping and quiet, you get to sleep, you do whatever you want. But if the baby wakes up, it's your job to go tend to the baby, to feed, change, whatever is needed. And then at some point in the night, that switches over um, for her to be on duty and you're off duty. So that means that everybody gets at least, you know, four to six uninterrupted hours. The downside to that is that then you and your wife have less, um, fewer wakeful hours together. Um, but you know, once you're past this phase and your baby is sleeping through the night, then you can get back to sleeping together, spending more time together. Um, but for now, I think having the split shift really, really saves people a lot because having those, even those four under, uninterrupted hours can feel so much better. Um, even if the total amount of sleep is the same at the end, um, because you want to get through your, you know, your deep sleep uninterrupted if possible. Well, and that's the thing, right? I mean, the, the, the quality of the sleep and the duration of the sleep, I think, I, I feel like it's finally starting to get the attention for whatever reason that it's mm -hmm. due. I don't know if there was a moment where a particular celebrity jumped forward and started talking about sleep or what it is. Mm -hmm. I know that so many people that I talk to who do what you do for a living mm -hmm. have sort of lamented the idea that this has been a problem since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. um, and wow, would things be better if it had gotten the kind of attention that it is getting now uh, much sooner? Because, you know, uh, if people are listening and want to even go back to the very first guest we ever had on the show, Dr. Adrian Owen, um, he and I talked about this idea that there are probably millions and millions of people out there 
who have an entire gear higher that they're not aware of in terms of performance and ability and things like that that they've never tapped into and never even knew was there and all they would have to do to be able to access that higher level of performance is get an extra 45 or 60 minutes of sleep a night. It's kind of like the old Paul Reiser joke where he talks about how that amazing feeling you get when your ear suddenly clears and you didn't realize it was plugged to begin with and there's this kind of Ah, that you didn't even know you could achieve. And sleep is kind of the same way, but most people aren't even prepared to acknowledge that they could do better. That's, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And just to, to add add uh, one more layer of nuance to that too, it may not be that extra 45 minutes that you need. It may be better quality for whatever amount of sleep that you know you were already getting. And I think that's the tricky thing about uh, talking about sleep in a public health sort of sphere, because there's no one set there. There's no one single message that applies to everybody. Like I can't, I wouldn't shout from the mountaintops, Hey, everybody get 45 more minutes of sleep because that does not apply to everyone. In fact, if I shouted that, um, about maybe 10, 20% of people would, that would actually backfire for them because those are the people who have chronic insomnia and they are already trying really hard to sleep. And their issue is not actually sleep deprivation. It's that either they're not getting good quality sleep or they and their sleep are at odds with each other so that they're not, um, they are wanting more sleep or they're wanting sleep at time when their body is not ready to give it. So that's a very different problem than someone who is, say, working three jobs and sleeping at odd times or working rotating shifts or um, someone who's staying up really late to play video games or someone who has sleep apnea. There's just such a diverse range of different sleep problems that require different types of sleep advice. Um, but I think you're right. If we could get everyone to improve their either their quantity or their quality of sleep, I think that would really go a long way. Like I, I have, my family has personal experience with that too, because my mom for many years had sleep apnea that was untreated. And when she finally went and got a sleep study, found out that she had apnea and started using CPAP, not only did her life change, all of us in the family, our, our lives changed because she was just a different person. And yeah, it's, it's that untapped potential for living, you know, a full, rich, enjoyable life that she didn't even know she had. So yeah, I, I agree that I wish there was more or rather, I'm just really happy that sleep is more on the forefront of everyone's mind. Yeah, it's getting so much attention now and and I'm grateful for all of that. It's interesting too when we start talking about quality of sleep and those things and we talk about sleep shifts with uh, a postpartum scenario for people. Mm -hmm. I mean, my wife and I, Right now, in the interest of exploring better sleep, are um, in uh, by the time people are hearing this episode, we'll be at the end of our first week of, I guess, what they're calling, although I hate the name, mm -hmm. a sleep divorce, mm -hmm. um, where sh she sleeps in one room, I sleep in another one, even though initially we really struggled with the idea of sleeping in different rooms because we love being next to each other but 
you know, people who have listened to this show before know my tale of woe. It's 30 years of sleep difficulties um, and and maybe even longer than 30 years of sleep difficulties that were in at least in part related to restless leg syndrome, periodic limb movement disorder. Um, you know, I, I had a periodic limb movement index of 82 wow. when I went for my first sleep lab, right? I mean, that, yeah. and that's the reaction I get from everybody. I've had neuroscientists and sleep researchers from around the world that all basically go, wow, that's a number. <laughs> um, yeah, like, but for my her, reaction is yikes. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not it's it's an achievement. Uh, Eighty two. It's it's something to shoot for. No, it's not. Don't go there. Um, so, in the interest mostly of preserving her sleep, mm-hmm. you know, I'm down the hall now, and um, so we've done this for two nights now, as as we're recording this, and mm-hmm. two nights in, well, suddenly she's busting out eight nine hours of sleep those nights where before mm-hmm. she was struggling to get six or seven hours wow. of sleep uh, of 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 sleep at all, never mind good quality sleep. And for me now, it's the quality that I've got to be concerned with because, you know, related to my schedule, my alarm goes off between 2.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning. So there's only so much sleep I can get. And now my focus is about maximizing the, the deep sleep because one of the main problems uh, along with the periodic limb movement disorder that came out of my sleep lab was that I get, according to my friends at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, um, 1% N3 sleep or deep sleep, which is, yeah, yeah, it's, it's the one that's, uh, you know, if, if depending on which studies you're reading this week, uh, N3 is the one that will help you stave off things like dementia and Alzheimer's and whatnot. And for someone uh, who shares my demographics, that number should be more like 19, 20%. And so that's an area that I really absolutely have to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, there's some urgency built into that, but it's it's part of this whole thing that we're experimenting with in our house as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you that I am not a fan of the term sleep divorce because there's nothing divorce-like about it. It's not like you had a fight and therefore you're sleeping in separate rooms. It's not like you're uh, deciding to not (laughs) spend the rest of your lives together. Um, Yeah, I think that's a very misleading term because what it really is, is just a method of protecting sleep for both of you so that you have more energy and more health and more um, you know, emotion regulation during the day to actually have a good relationship and be good parents and, you know, be good individuals for yourselves. So, um, I fully support that plan. I think that's a great idea. And I myself sometimes sleep, um, like my husband and I usually share a bed, but he snores sometimes and I'll just go in the other room. And there's, I think nothing wrong with that. And I think for people who are concerned about decreased relationship quality or less, you know, couple quality time together, I say that, you know, you can still go to bed together. You can still cuddle, be intimate, have a conversation. You can still go through your bedtime routine together, but you know, you can end up sleeping in separate rooms. Yeah. I mean, for us, the the go-to-bed routine is largely the same. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that moment where we would normally, 
you know, turn over and, and close our eyes. Well, that's when I get up and go to the other room. Um, you know, so that part hasn't changed. And, and, you know, you start to think about all of the attachment that people have to the sleeping next to the other person. Well, you're, you're not consciously aware that they're there anyway. So right. what's the difference? I think for some of us, we look at, we think about people who are are married and sleep in separate beds. And we think of like Rob and Laura Petrie from the Dick Van Dyke show, or we think of Fred and Wilma Flintstone, and we automatically think of old people, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so maybe that's part of the stigma. Maybe that's why people are so willing to uh, apply... A, a really loaded term like right. sleep divorce to it, um, yeah. you know, when in fact it's actually a really potentially positive thing that, like you said, has all kinds of beneficial impact. I I don't know who's in charge of naming these things, but <laughs> I, I hope whoever it is, you know, sits down, does a focus group, comes up with something better in a big hurry because it's not a fun term to talk about. I Yes, I totally agree. And I think you're right that it's so just culturally baked in that it's expected for married couples to sleep in the same bed. But, you know, throughout history, there's been a lot of other ways that people sleep. You know, there there are cultures today and in history where the entire extended family will sleep in the same big room together or um, mothers and kids will sleep in the same bed, whereas you know, other members will sleep in a different bed or uh, there will be bunk beds or, you know, there are all sorts of combinations for how people sleep in terms of physical arrangements. And also there's uh, cultural differences in when people sleep and how people sleep. Like um, pre-industrial times, it was completely normal in Western society to be just awake for an hour or two in the middle of the night. And um, to get chores done, to actually go see friends, to hang out and tell stories. Um, and and really, it was only uh, pretty recently in history, in the last couple hundred years, that we've gotten down to a we must sleep through the night and we must sleep, uh, you know, the married couple in a separate room with each other on the same bed. That is actually a pretty recent cultural phenomenon. So there are plenty of right ways to sleep. And I don't think there are really any wrong ways to sleep unless it's dangerous for some reason. Well, and when we talk about wrong ways to sleep and is it dangerous, talk to me a little about about um, delayed sleep phases, because Mm -hmm. there are people out there. Plenty of them, in fact, who talk, you know, you use terms like uh, being a night owl, being a morning person, all these different kinds of things where they'll say, no, no, I my body works better when I go to sleep at six in the morning and wake up sometime in the early afternoon. I mean, what what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So the example you give would be one of the most extreme forms of delayed sleep phase. Um, in fact, that's almost completely night day flipped. And so depending on that person's lifestyle and profession, um, it's possible that they actually function well with this because of the job that they have and the social life that they have allows them to do this. In which case, sure, fine, that's that's not a problem because we are biologically hardwired to have um, you know, a, a sleep phase that our bodies just prefer. And this is called your chronotype. So most people have um, a chronotype where they are asleep 
during the night. Um, and for adults, it's, you know, uh, I want to say ballpark, say like 11 p.m. to like a 7 a.m. Um, but plenty of people just do not feel sleepy until after midnight. And then there are some people who are, you know, sleepy much earlier than that, say at 8 p.m., but then they're up at 3 a.m. feeling ready for the day. So there is a normal variation in the population for when we prefer to go to sleep. And that makes sense, right? Because back in the day, you know, in our caveman, cavewoman days, um, Somebody had to stay up late to sort of keep uh, keep watch over the tribe, and somebody had to wake up early to get get things started for the day for the tribe. So some normal variation is baked into our species for probably a good reason. Um, and so if you are able to follow your body's natural chronotype and do what your body prefers to do, that is the best thing to listen to your body, to go with what it wants instead of fighting it. That's, that's your best bet. But often we don't get a choice in that. Sometimes our jobs require that we are up really early when we're actually more of a delayed sleep phase person. And that's where it gets tricky. Um, but there are ways to overcome or at least manage, um, that, that discrepancy by using things like light and melatonin, um, in a very, I I don't want to say anything too specific because I don't want people to hear it and try it at home without having consulted a, you know, a, um, a doctor or psychologist who is, who specializes in behavioral sleep medicine, because it really is very, very individual. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I hope that answers your question about delayed sleep phase. I'm so, and I'm so glad you brought up vitamin M because I could hug you. Um, (laughs) We'll get into vitamin M in a a second, but uh, this idea of being biologically wired to sleep at a different part of the day, a different chronotype Mm -hmm. is very different from the conversation that people seem to love to have on the internet about how they claim to be biologically hardwired to only need five hours of sleep a night. That's a whole different thing. Right. That is a whole different thing. Yeah. And I mean, there are people who are hardwired to only need five hours of sleep. That's rare. Um, but they exist. And also that changes over the, uh, the course of someone's life too. If I were talking to someone who's 85 years old and they say, I only need five hours, I would not at all be surprised. Um, but if a teenager told me they only needed five hours, I would say that's not true. Um, there's no way that's true. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's hard. I think that's part of what's confusing for people is when they're having these conversations online and forums, you don't know who you're getting this information from. It's very possible that this anonymous person on the internet, uh, you know, goes to, goes to bed at 6am and then sleeps until 11am and that's all they need. And that's the timing that they need. Sure. That's possible. But I highly doubt that that applies to the vast majority of people. Well, and it goes back to the conversation we had earlier as well, where the person that you just described who goes to bed at six, wakes up at 11, and and that's what they're hardwired to need. I wonder if it's that that's what they're hardwired to need or if it's um, what's available to them and they've convinced themselves that they have maxed out their potential. Right, Um, right. You know, it goes back to the conversation we had earlier about how much better we could all do if we could just improve our sleep. Um, and, and you get into an interesting area. It, the fun thing of talking to you is that every answer you give, 
I, if I was a person that wrote down copious notes, which I've never been, uh, there's 17 other questions that spring up out of every answer you give me, which is, it makes you a delight to interview. Um, so I want to come back and circle back to melatonin in a second, but, uh, first let's tackle this thing that we've kind of begun to talk about with message boards and Reddit and Facebook groups and all these different places online where people congregate to get advice from, yeah, 99% of the time, random strangers to try and improve their own sleep. I mean, talk to me about people who are self-diagnosing their insomnia and then often self-medicating to try and figure out what to do about it. Well, how I, I imagine someone like you sees a lot of that. Yes, that is such a fantastic question. Um, yes, the thing uh, I think sleep is particularly uh, an area that's prone to misinformation, misdiagnosis, mis self diagnosis, uh, and you know, mis self medication, and that's because. There is so much misinformation about sleep out there. And there's also a lot of really good information that doesn't apply to a particular person. So even if people with really good integrity, neuroscientists, doctors, people who are really educated in this are very well intentioned and providing um, you know, uh, summaries of research studies on the internet, uh, that without the context of knowing what a specific patient needs, that information could be helpful, could be neutral, or could even be harmful. Um, and add to that the fact that there are a lot of people who are not qualified to talk about sleep, giving sleep advice on the internet. Um, so between all of those things and between the, the cultural um, uh, sort of pressure that we put on sleep, the fact that we all put sleep on a pedestal, which, you know, sleep is really important, but we sometimes talk about it in such a way that it puts a lot of pressure on people to get those eight hours of sleep. Some people do need eight hours of sleep. Some people need more than that. Some people need less than that. Um, but someone who is maybe very high achieving and hardworking may read somewhere that, oh, you absolutely need eight hours of sleep and then read somewhere else that if you don't get enough sleep, you'll have dementia. Then they're thinking, oh, I'm only getting sleep seven hours right now. So that one hour difference is going to give me dementia. So I need to take something over the counter to help myself sleep an extra hour, or I need to go to bed earlier, or I need to try harder, or I need to get lavender oil, or I need to meditate. So, and, and some of those things are good. You know, I encourage people to meditate, but if you're meditating specifically to try to force yourself to sleep when you're not ready to sleep, that's going to backfire and give you insomnia. So then it becomes really tricky to give any sort of advice that applies to everyone. Like I said earlier, there's not a single line of advice that I wish out from the mountaintops to everyone, for everyone to hear. Um, because, you know, even with my best of intentions, somebody is going to hear it and, and that's going to backfire for them. I mean, that's kind of the adventure that I'm on with this whole project, right? Is it, and, and we talked about me wanting to improve my quality of sleep. And so you talk about meditation and all these different things. And I start thinking, you know, one of the things that this, uh, not only the podcast, but the book that will come from the podcast mm -hmm. is designed to do 
is to kind of walk through a lot of that stuff on my own sleep adventure, but with a very, very careful nod to the fact that just because various things either worked or failed for me mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they're going to work or fail for everyone else, which is why it's so frustrating to jump onto some of these websites mm-hmm. and see people saying, oh, well, if you're having sleep issues, all you got to do is take melatonin. And if the melatonin's not working, it's because you're not taking enough and you just got to take more of it. Oh, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <Mm-mm>. <laughs> You know, um, it was it was uh, Dr. Schneeberg, whose name I'll invoke one more time, who uh, first uh, told me that uh, melatonin is referred to by many sleep specialists as vitamin M because there are so many family doctors, general practitioners, whatnot, who aren't necessarily sleep experts themselves Mm -hmm. simply because of the limitations of medical school um, who will say, oh, yeah, if you got sleep issues, take melatonin. And she says it's ridiculously overprescribed. It's ridiculously overrecommended and people don't know if it's going to work for them. Mm -hmm. And so when it doesn't, then that puts even more pressure on them. It's even goes back to a conversation we had a couple of months ago on the show now with Connor Henehan. He is the lead sleep researcher for Fitbit Uh who talks about, you know, how these devices and Michael Grandner kind of agrees with him in that the devices are useful in helping you figure out whether you're sleeping or or awake. But if you need more granular numbers or more granular data than that, for crying out loud, go to a sleep lab. Yeah. Um, and, you <laughs> know, even Connor Henehan, who works for Fitbit and wants to sell Fitbits, right. says, yeah, you know what? Don't obsess over the numbers because that in itself can give you insomnia. Absolutely. And that is called orthosomnia. The phenomenon where tracking your sleep too closely actually gives you insomnia. So I, I'm very impressed and very happy that he was uh, that he acknowledged that because I think that's so true. This obsession over tracking our sleep makes you know the thing that I think it's analogous to is kind of like tracking calories, which can be very helpful in some circumstances, but. Mostly, if we listen to our bodies and generally follow some principles of healthy eating, we're going to do fine. If we obsess too much over the calories, then we're going to develop you know, a, a, a relationship with food that may not be healthy and may end up backfiring and, and give us poorer health. So in the same way, if we obsessively track our sleep too much, you know, especially if the numbers are not necessarily accurate for telling you whether you're in deep sleep or not, or, you know, exactly how many times you woke up and you're getting those data without the context of what's normal or like what's supposed, what sleep is supposed to be like, then that gives people a lot of anxiety. Like for example, everybody is shocked when they come in and hear that they really only should be getting about 15 to 20% Uh, of the night, uh, um, to be deep sleep. Everybody thinks, Oh, shouldn't it be a hundred percent? No. If you had a hundred percent deep sleep, I would be very worried uh, because that, I don't know, that wouldn't even be a coma. That'd be something else entirely. So, um, so I think, yeah, it's, it can be dangerous for people to be too hung up on their, um, Fitbit data, um, when it comes to tracking sleep for sure. It's funny that you brought up calories because I, uh, I've i told this story on the show before, uh, but for people who are new to the show and for you, um, I had a conversation once with a bodybuilder mm-hmm. who was obsessing over their body fat percentage. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were at, this guy was at, I think he's, uh, he was at 7% body fat, mm. 
but was really, really working hard because he wanted to get down to six and a half. Oh, wow. And we started talking about uh, the methods he was using to test his body fat. And, and then I did some research into all of that stuff. And here's what I learned is that the only test for body fat that is 100% accurate is a process called an autopsy. Oh, my God. And it's not, <laughs> it's not generally recommended for casual weight loss enthusiasts. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. You know, and so everything short of an autopsy is a guess. And so then what you as the consumer have to decide is what margin of error are you comfortable with because how important is the data to you? So maybe you're willing to accept the margin of error that comes from stepping on the scale that you can get at Best Buy that tells you what your body fat percentage is. Or maybe you can live with you know a calculation that's more like BMI where it's just your height and your weight, which mm-hmm. is horrifically inaccurate, but maybe it's good enough for you mm-hmm. for the information that you need. And it's the same thing with sleep. If you need something more accurate than your tracker on your phone can tell you because the the minutia of every single statistic is so critically important to you, yeah. then yeah, get a referral to a sleep lab. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And yeah, the, the margin of error just throw, throws the wrench in the whole tracking thing and tells us that you know, it's even if you obsess over it, it's not going to be that accurate anyways. And also, how about getting back to good old fashioned, how do you feel? You know, like, what if we just listened to our bodies and said, you know, I'm not feeling very healthy, or I'm not feeling rested, or I'm feeling uh, whichever way, and or I'm feeling sleepy, or I'm not feeling sleepy, you know, these are the things that are actually the best markers for what we should do. If you're feeling sleepy, you should go sleep. You know, if you're if you're persistently, chronically feeling sleepy during the day when you're not supposed to be, then something's wrong and go talk to your doctor and get a sleep study. Um, but I think the, the lost art of simply listening to our bodies um, and and basing our actions and our level of comfort or our level of trust in our bodies based, you know, off of how we feel that lost art needs to come back. Well, and even you're talking, when you talk about meditation, um, you see so many people that, you know, they get uh, a meditation app, whether it's, I mean, my go-to has always been uh, 10% happier. Um, but there's a ton of great ones out there. Um, People will get a meditation app exclusively to help them sleep. And I'm like, "Mm, no, Uh because your meditation practice is basically a a more big picture thing. And then once you've figured meditation out, then you can start to channel it into specific areas of your life that you need to work on. But just to get into meditation specifically so you can sleep better, that may not get you kind of the results that you need, right? Right. Right. I agree with that. Yes. There's so many different things it can be good for. And and I've heard people say, yes, meditation can help you sleep. But wouldn't it be better if you used all of the tools that are available to you that all the benefits that you get from meditation, even by, you know, virtue of the fact that maybe waking up and meditating when you first wake up sets you up better for a day where at the end of it, you'll have an easier time falling asleep because your meditation in the morning set you up to have a better day. 
Yeah, I love that idea. And yeah, if the meditation can set you up for a better day, for a more grounded, mindful day of being more in touch with your body, more in touch with your surroundings, that will sort of inevitably translate to better sleep, but not because you're meditating as a as as if you were using a hammer, you know, to get to sleep, but because better sleep will be a downstream effect of general better health. Yeah. And if you put all the pressure of helping you sleep on your meditation practice, your meditation practice is never going to, you, you, exactly. it's never going to take flight anyway. Exactly. Um, listen, I, I could talk to you for another week and a half. Uh, this is, uh, this has, <laughs> but I'm, I'm hyper aware of the fact that you literally could go into labor at any second. And I've been lucky <laughs> to have the time that I've had. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm, I'm super grateful. I'm going to make sure that, um, Every possible place to find you, links to your podcast, links to your website, all that kind of fun stuff um, are not only in the show notes, but also on uh, the website for our podcast as well. Um, I'm ridiculously grateful you had time for this and and thank you so much because, you know, it's interesting. Every person that I talk to on this subject and we're up to a couple of dozen now – Everybody teaches me something, and and that's absolutely the case with you as well. And and it underlines the fact that there is, in spite of the fact that the science is becoming so sophisticated now around sleep, there is so much more we don't know yet than what we do know. Yeah, yeah. I, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I think it's um, really cool that you're making this available to the public and and sort of disseminating all of this knowledge. I think one huge gap in our field of sleep research is that we're not really good at translating our research into understandable, digestible, you know, bite-sized chunks for people to actually learn. So you're, you're filling a very, very valuable gap here. It's so funny that you say that because one of the things that's in my uh, on my if I have a bucket list, I've always felt like bucket lists are cheesy. But if I had a bucket list for this project, it's to go uh, this summer to Philadelphia to the Academy of Sleep Medicine Conference Mm -hmm. and talk to all kinds of sleep nerds who are in ex- who have basically expressed exactly the same thing that you just did where it's like you know what we're really great at talking about data and science we're not great at flagging down that guy over there that's standing waiting to cross the street and boiling it down in a in a way that will make sense to him and that he will take the necessary steps Exactly. We're very, we academics are very good at talking to each other, um, but we're preaching to the choir most of the time, or we're fighting over minutiae that don't really matter when it's translated, you know, into actionable advice. But what I love is that it's all going in a similar direction, right? I mean, it's not like you, you brought up calories and stuff earlier. It's not like the nutrition world. And let's look at, for example, cholesterol, where even, even this morning, in Canada, there was another study released that the government cited this morning that said, hey, you can have an egg a day and it won't give you a heart attack. Like the nutrition world, there's a new study every day that contradicts the three studies that came out before it, where in the sleep world, everything's just kind of following a path. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do a pretty good job of um ending up on the same page, not, not because we're trying to end up on the same page, but I think there is really rigorous 
good work being done in the sleep field. And um, I am really happy to see people like you taking an interest and and sort of um, preaching the good word, I guess. Dr. Jade Wu on the Snooze Button podcast. Uh, Just a quick recap of some of the links and emails and things like that. They'll be in the show notes and on our website. But just as a quick recap, send an email to contests at thesnoozebutton.com. If you get it to us before Sunday, February the 9th, there's a chance you could win a copy of Guy Leshthiner's book, The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience, and the Secret World of Sleep. Make sure you include your name and your town for that. Um, Also, if you want to support the show uh, in a non-financial way, here's the easiest way to do it. Rate this podcast.com slash snooze. That's rate this podcast.com slash snooze. Uh, if you want to do it in a monetary fashion, uh, it, it's just a few bucks if you want, or if you want to throw more at it than that, there's a bunch of different tiers of support waiting for you at glow.fm slash the snooze button. Again, glow.fm slash the snooze button. And if you have a question about your sleep and you want to throw it at one of our experts, send an email to asktheexperts at thesnoozebutton.com. It's asktheexperts at thesnoozebutton.com. Or you can leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash thesnoozebutton. Got all that? No, I know. It's in the show notes. Trust me on this one. Until next week when we're back together again with another rock star sleep expert guests, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?